So most of you know this. Uh, my wife and I, we do foster care. And it's the best of times, no doubt about it. Super healthy for us. And sometimes there are interesting moments with kids. So a number of years ago, we um, got two brothers, a newborn who was born addicted to heroin. And my wife actually would travel over to Medford where he was in the NICU and she would like hold him at night and the nurses would hold him in the day. And that went on for about nine days. And then he came to our house. His name is Harry. And he had an older brother, Hunter. Hunter was found out in Cave Junction in a car with a dog bite on his face, three years old, uh, alone because his dad was passed out from heroin outside the car. So we got both of them and um, great boys, loved them. We would have adopted those two, but uh, God gave them a one ticket. God gave them a one-way ticket to paradise. Paternal grandma lives in Hawaii, adopted them and they're thriving now, brilliant. But there was a moment um, where we took them and we went over to Medford to U.S. Cellular Park there and there's a bunch of soccer games going. If you've ever been there, there'll be like eight soccer games happening at the same time. And you're kind of back to back. You're watching a soccer game here and all the fans are here. And then behind you, there's another soccer game going and there's a bunch of fans over there and there's a walkway in between. So we're watching it. Families are there, blankets are out, ice chest, people are having a great time, lawn chairs, just having a great day. So we're there evening watching one of my girls play soccer. Well, my job was to watch Hunter, so I'm kind of keeping an eye on him and he's playing around and he's having a great time and it's, it's wonderful. When our team scored and I'm like, yeah, so I stopped watching him for like a minute. I look back and he has gone over to the other side over there and he has rolled himself up in another three-year-old's blanket. And that three-year-old who 30 seconds ago could have cared less about that blanket wants it back now. <laughs> Give me my blanket. And Hunter is not getting out of that blanket. And he's also wiping his nose on the blanket. Which, you know, you're just like, oh, okay. So I walk over there. I'm like, ah, oh, sorry. And I get down. I'm like, Hunter, buddy, give the boy his blanket back. And he just looks at me and says, no. Which the mom is like, she smiled weakly at me like, eh, eh, eh. you know how that is. And I'm like, okay. So I said, and, and I did what you should never do. Try to reason with a three-year-old brain, right? You can't reason with a three-year-old brain. So I'm like, buddy, this is not your blanket. It's somebody else's blanket. It's not polite. You need to give this boy his blanket back. Now. Like, okay. So this went on what felt like eternity, Right. And you can just feel like everyone watching you now, like the 10-year-old soccer game is great. This is greater. Watch that right there. Like what is happening over there, right? So finally, he decides to unroll from the blanket, but he unrolls out and throws this tantrum where he is just pounding on the ground, crying and yelling. The little boy snatches his blanket back. That makes him even more upset. And you know, now probably... 20 feet in all directions, 30 feet in all directions, every eye is on me. And you know what they're all thinking? What a terrible father he is. What a miserable failure that guy is. He can't even control his three-year-old, right? Because uh, Hunter is blonde-haired, blue-eyed. I mean, he could look like my son, right? So I'm like, okay, Hunter, you need to stand up right now. 
right now, right? And that kind of tone you get, right? Where he's a foster care. I want to be really safe with him, but this has to end. This can't go on anymore. Now, right? So I gently grab him, place him on his feet and say, let's go. He won't. So I grab his hand and said, let's go. Well, he doesn't walk. He just does this and falls over. And I am dragging him back over to my spot. Like, and I wanted so bad to say, he's not mine. He's a foster kid, right? But I did not. There better be a reward in heaven. So here's what's happened. I don't know what the number is now of that kind of age of kid. We've had a bunch of them. And what my wife started to notice was there's this pattern. They, they, they look like they've been punched out of the same mold. Like, why is that? What has happened with them? So she started to read this guy named Dr. Bruce Perry, and he is brilliant. And I started to read him as well. Like, this is fascinating. And what he begins to talk about, like the brain development and the first year of infant development is like it sets the default setting on your brain in that first year. And that first year just is a puppet master for your childhood and for the rest of your life. And he goes, there are, he's got a bunch of them, but there are two big brains. There's one default, which is the world is a safe place and I can calmly explore it. The other is the world is dangerous and I have to fight or flight from everything, right? And those are your two big brains by Dr. Bruce Perry. It's just brilliant stuff. Well, we as Christians, we can acknowledge that. But where I differ is this, we can also be changed. That those defaults and what happened to us or what did not happen to us as kids doesn't have to define our life. That Romans 12 tells us that our minds can actually be renewed that default settings can be reset to the way that they're supposed to be. And so we are in a section of Mark right now where it's Mark looks at the cross and what he does is he really talks about the cross by looking at other people and how they respond to the cross. And maybe they respond because of their childhood or something, I don't know. But the goal of Mark is real simple. It's a mirror. How would I have responded if I was at the cross? And if you respond like the good, and there's good there, be thankful for God's grace. And if you respond like the bad or the ugly, and there's bad and ugly responses to the cross, then you confess that and say, change me, reset my defaults so I'm not that kind of person. So let's look in the mirror of the crowd at the cross and say, God, where, where would you have me? to respond, where would you have me to repent if I need to, all right? So the first guy, verse 21, Mark chapter 15. Simon, I call him the substitute. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Simon's a substitute. Does the name Simon ring a bell in your head? Have we seen another Simon that's really prominent in the gospel of Mark? Simon Peter. 
But we know from the previous chapter, Simon Peter had failed incredibly. He was the guy that said, I'm never gonna leave you. I'll be right by your side. I'm gonna be the dude. He was the Simon that I think should have been carrying the cross, but he wasn't. Now, why? Because he failed greatly. And now it's no coincidence, I don't believe, that another Simon is put in his place to do maybe the job that Peter was supposed to be doing. So here's what I believe. God's will will be accomplished hard period. He will use willing tools. If I'm not willing, he'll find somebody else. He'll find a substitute. It's Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30. And God says this, I searched for a man to stand in the gap, but I didn't find any. And then it goes on with what happens. There was nobody like Isaiah raising their hands saying, here I am, send me. There wasn't a willing tool. And so bad things happen. Now there are times God just overrides people, Jonas, right? But Jonah's like a bad story, by the way, read it. It ends miserably. That can happen, but mostly God says, if you're not gonna do it, I'll find somebody else. Simon, if you're not gonna do what you say, I'll find another Simon who will be the substitute. And let me give you the example that I have. So I've had the opportunity to go to India five times and work with this group called the Body of Christ Ministries. I've been all the world, over, over the world in missions. It's been brilliant, great opportunity. Spent a school year in Vanuatu, just, it's awesome. Body of Christ Ministries is the best ministry I've ever seen. Just the scope of it blew my mind. I had no idea. They had this infant home because in India, uh, there's a high premium on boy babies and a low premium on girl babies because girls cost you money. So they will just abandon girls on the side of the road right when they're born. And their hope is because of reincarnation, which they believe, well, better luck next time. Maybe you'll come back as a boy and we'll, we'll keep you that time. Well, Body of Christ Ministry said, no way. So they just have adopted all these baby girls. And there's just tons of girls now on this property because they've done that ministry. They noticed that the fishermen could not afford to educate their children. So they started a school, it filled up, 500 students. They started another school, it filled up. I think they're on like their fourth school now. Just unbelievable. And it's, hey, whatever you can pay. If it's a fish a day, a fish a month, we'll make sure your kids get educated. They put on this pastor's conference. When I was there for the first time, they had no idea who I was. And like 500 pastors showed up. That's the, the breadth of this. They have planted, well, 10 years ago, I don't know what the number is even now. 10, uh, they had planted at that point 2,000 churches. Think about that number for a second. How many churches are in America? 2,000 churches planted by this one group. We had the privilege when we were still at Fruitdale Elementary to build 15 churches in India. I think, why did God bless us with this incredible building? Maybe it was because when we did not have a building, we were willing to give our money and resources and actually send teams over to India and build churches for them. That God is a debtor to no one. That yeah, it was a long season, 13 years, seven months, 10 days, but who's counting? <laughs> and what a blessing this place is now, right? I can just go on and on and on. There, the place that they're in is called Rameshwaram. It's the second most holy site for Hinduism. The Ganges River 
and Rameshwaram. And people will come down there, not a big city, maybe 40, 40,000 people, which is nothing, nothing in India. Like, you know, there's a billion people there. So it's tiny when it comes to cities. And they'll go down there and they'll take their crazy uncle down there to the holy site. And when they leave, they leave the uncle. So Rameshwaram has this giant population of really mentally disturbed people. And because of uh, karma and reincarnation, everyone just believes, well, they deserve it. They did something in their past life. So they're just, they're neglected and ignored. Not Body of Christ Ministries. They will go out, they will pick them all up, bring them back to their compound. They will feed them, cut their hair, give them a bath. They will say, listen, if you want to, you can stay here. We open our home to you. But because they're not exactly there, some will stay, some will not. It's just brilliant. Like the scope of this thing. They have this 200,000 square foot conference center, all marble, all white. Like you see it and you're just like, what is that? In the middle of nowhere, just this massive complex. This is about 30,000 square feet, this whole, you know, building. Multiply that by eight. It's just unbelievable. And so you see this and wow, unbelievable. So I talked to Moses Paulos, who's the founder of it. And it wasn't easy for him. He has had the snot kicked out of him. He had a price put on his head to kill him. I mean, just read his book. We have it over here. It's called uh, Missionary Disciple. It's unbelievable what he went through there. He's, he's one of the most holy men that I know. He bears on his body the beatings that happened to him. He's now passed away. He's now in eternity. But man, just brilliant, brilliant man. Uh, the chief of police of Rameshwaram would beat the snot out of Christians, burned down their church multiple times. That's why the new one they built out of cement. Can't burn it anymore, right? Just that kind of like stuff. You're just like, what? I didn't even know that still happens now. Yes, it does, right? So amazing thing. Last time I was in India, that same chief of police was in church with us. I sat behind him just in case. I do know a chokehold. That's all I know. Right? Just, and he's actually there because he said, you guys have made a difference in my town. What is the reason? And Moses was able to share with him the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's a believer now. Like, that's just the power. It's just unbelievable. Right? So uh, the, my first trip over, I'm like, I'm stunned by it. I'm like, Moses, explain this to me. Like out in the middle of nowhere, this thing, like explain this to me. And this is what he said. He said, well, I lived in Kerala. Kerala is the Hawaii of India. It's, I went there one time. It's unbelievable. Palm trees, clean, beautiful. 25% of the population is Christian. It's believed Mark, the, um, Thomas, the doubter, went there from, well, actually got on a ship and went there and planted churches, and that's the fruit of it. Tamil Nadu is 0.2% Christian, just opposite. And he had this dream. God was saying, I want you to go to Tamil Nadu, which is forsaken and dry and dirty and hard. I want you to go there and be my missionary. And so he packed up his family, moved there, put them into that environment. And he said, Matt, here's what's crazy. God told me, that he had asked somebody else to go and that person refused. I was just the one that said, okay. And the whites, the fields were white, ready for a harvest. He goes, it wasn't me, it was God. Listen, God's gonna get it done. Are we the willing ones? 
Are we like Isaiah saying, okay, here I am, send me. Has God been putting something on your heart that you just know you're supposed to do? Okay, why aren't you doing it? Why aren't you doing it? God will get his will done. And at some point, God says, okay, okay. I searched for a man who was standing in the gap. I didn't find any, so I moved on. Man, go for it. God is good. The work is brilliant. Lift up your eyes. The fields are white, ready for a harvest. God, I'll go. Don't let there be a substitute. That's Simon. Number two, you've got the soldiers. The soldiers, they're in a rut. Listen to this. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right hand and one on his left. These are the soldiers. I just say they're stuck in a rut. Why would I say that? The greatest event in history is happening right behind them. And what are they doing? Gambling for a t-shirt. They're so just used to this process that they miss out on the most incredible event in history. Ah, it's just another cruiser. Oh, there's just, you know, that's what they do. The Bible has a term for this, this kind of rutness. It's the term evil days. Now, sometimes we read evil days and we think, well, okay, we're in the most evil days ever, that somehow evil is worse today than it was back 2,000 years ago or in history. I just say people that say that haven't read history because it's been much worse. We have it super good right now. I'm thankful for that. That's not what evil days mean. The first time it's used, it's used by Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. You can read it. Here's what he says. He says, when you're young, he's talking to young men, when you're young, chase your king hard because there's coming a day that you'll wake up and say, ouch, I woke up, right? You know that comes for us. And then he just starts to describe, here's what happens to you. Here's what the evilness of days does to you. You're gonna lose your sight, you can't see anymore. You can't hear anymore. But at night, the chirp of a bird will wake you up. Isn't that crazy? Right? You can't hear anymore, but the chirp of a bird will wake you up. Have you noticed that? So when I was 20 years old, I was in the school of ministry. And I lived with 24 guys in a four-bedroom house. I had six people in a room the size of a closet. I did not have a mattress. I just had a sleeping bag and a pillow, and I slept like a log. Now, 50 years old, I will wake up like a dog's barking in Medford. What is that? And then I can't go back to sleep, right? Like what in the world happened? <laughs> That's what he's saying. He goes, your voice, your voice won't work anymore. You ever watched an old rocker sing? Right? I remember I was just thumbing through the channels one time and I stopped because PBS had Neil Young on and Neil Young was singing his favorites or his hits or whatever. And I'm listening, I'm like, man, he cannot hit the highs anymore. 
His voice is gone and toast. That's why he has backup singers now. But I thought, because the, the camera kind of moved out on the audience, I thought, well, it doesn't matter because everybody's old, they can't hear him. So it's like a beautiful marriage. Like, well, hey, still hitting it, man. That Neil Young, you still got it. No, you just can't hear anymore, right? That's the evilness of days. He says, look out. This thing will just lull you into sleep. And then it's one day you wake up and it's too late. You don't have what you had before. It's too late. So be very careful. So here's what Ephesians 5 says. And it's Paul says the same thing about evil days. So Paul says this. Awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Should be stenciled over every teenager's bed. (laughs) He just talked about in that passage, if you know it, snoozing through life. He says, wake up. I think the believer every month three months, whatever you can do, should take an extended amount of time and just sit and ask themselves, am I snoozing through life right now? Am I focused on things that do not matter? Am I missing important events because I'm worried about a t-shirt? That we should be doing that and letting God wake up in us the higher calling we have than just day after day, in the rut, in the grind. Am I missing my kids? Am I missing my spouse? Am I missing ministry? Wake up, right? Or we'll be like these soldiers in a rut, missing out on the great things God's doing all around us. Number three, this is the high priest and the scribes and the robbers, the two thieves, and they are gloating. Look at this, verse 27, 28. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him one to another saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, Come down now from the cross that we may see and believe those who are crucified with him also reviled him. You sum up the attitude of that group and they're gloating. Here's why. They had been afraid of Jesus. He'd come into their temple turned the tables over, ruined their whole financial system. He was more popular than them. He did miracles that they could not refute. They tried to attack him with question after question after question. He answered those questions and actually turned the question back on them. And they knew we are outmatched by him. But now he's on a cross. And they're like, yeah, we got you. Yeah, yes. They were glad Jesus was hanging there in pain. They were gloating. The Germans have a word for this called schadenfreude. It literally means harm joy because it's such a 
normal human thing to look at people that maybe we're afraid of or better than us or greater than us and then to be glad when harm comes to them. Schadenfreude. Don't we all have that? The coworker that you're kind of in competition with to get the next promotion, they miss a deadline and you're kind of like, yes, Schadenfreude. The team that's playing your team and the quarterback gets taken out in the first quarter on a stretcher, there's a little bit of, yes, schadenfreude, harm joy. The preacher that commits adultery and it's all over the news, right? I told you, yeah, okay. Doesn't, no news story about the thousands of faithful pastors, just the one that you can gloat over, the news can gloat over. It's in all of us. So there's a book called The Gloat Factor, And in it, I think the author rightly argues that it's gloating with all of its kind of jealousy and resenting success and divisiveness and tribal tendencies. That actually was the fertilizer for the Holocaust in Germany. That's how bad gloating can be. And he has this quote, I'll read it for you. He says, gloating allows people to GPS themselves back to their desired destination, intact and unruffled self-exceptionalism. That when someone we think is powerful, when they're brought low, we're like, yeah, ha ha, I'm better than you. I am exceptional. I am great. Look at me. I knew you were a fake. It's a zero sum game. And when you lose, I win. So what are believers in the gospel supposed to think about gloating? It's the antithesis of the gospel. No one can gloat at the cross. We all came there the same way. We're all sinners in need of grace. There's no one better than us, right? We're all bad. We all need the cross. That's what it is. Jesus says the first shall be last. The Bible says esteem others better than yourself. That it's not my tribe is better or my crew is better. It's we're all broken and we all need a savior. That's the brilliance of the gospel. Stop gloating. It's horrific. It ruins you. Who cares about another person's success, right? Live the life that Jesus has for you. Do the good works that God has prepared for you, right? That's the way a Christian's supposed to live. Like, I'm not jealous. And if someone else succeeds, praise God. Man, there's too much work to be done. I want people to be better than me. Please be better than me. It's not that hard. (laughs) I get the emails. People always tell me how to be better. I'm like, you be better for crying out loud. I'm trying my best. Do not gloat. It is a doctrine of demons that shrinks your soul. Don't do it. It's bad, 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 bad. How do I do that, Matt? It comes up in me all the time. I say, you play whack-a-mole. You identify it, there it is, and you whack it with repentance. God, I do not want to feel this way. I do not want these feelings in me. Maybe some default setting in my childhood set this. Reset that default. Help me not to be somebody that ever gloats in someone else's. Help me to not have schadenfreude. Harm joy. I don't want that in my heart. You repent. And you do it especially for the people you do not like. That's the big mole. That's the one that gets us. 
We're supposed to be so different than the world that we love even our enemies. Whack-a-mole. So these guys gloated. Next group, I call them the watchers. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. I call these the watchers and they just wanna be entertained. So Jesus speaks, they get this sponge, they dip it in sour wine, they offer it to Jesus. Why did they do that? To ease his suffering, take away his pain? No, one reason, wait, don't die yet, right? They're actually extending his misery. Don't die yet because we wanna see something. If you don't die, maybe Elijah will come down. That would be awesome. It'll go viral, I'll get 10 million views. Don't die yet, right? That is what they are doing. It's like that movie Gladiator, remember that? Where he fights in the Colosseum and then he just says, are you not entertained? Entertain us, entertain us. We all wanna be entertained. So when you drive by an accident, what do you do? The saints pray, the rest of us pull out our phone. Hey, this will be good, right? Entertain us, entertain us. There's a book by Neil Postman. It's almost as old as me. It's back to the 80s. It's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And what he writes almost prophetically is he says this, and the medium then was TV. He said, here's what TV is gonna do, do to a population. You'll no longer care about information. You could care less about the facts. All you want is entertain me. Isn't that cable news now? Right? They all take the same information and they make very different entertainment out of it. Two, two absolutely separate ways, same information. Because no one really cares about the information. We just wanna be entertained, amusing ourselves to death. That great, brilliant social commentator Mark Zuckerberg put it like this. He said, a squirrel dying in your front yard will be more important than a thousand people dying in Africa. Why? Entertainment. Man, all, all my friends will watch this. That's why. We don't care about information. We are moving to a people that just care about entertainment. There it is, the cross, with a bit of information at the top of it. Jesus, king of the Jews. They could care less about that entertain us. We want to see Elijah do something cool, right? How about us? I call it death by a thousand paper cuts. How often do we choose entertainment over people, which is what they're doing right here? How often do we go for our phone, not because it's ringing, not because something important is happening, when there's a real life human in front of us who will last for eternity and we choose our phone over them because, ah, uh, I wanna be entertained. They're kind of boring right now. How many times do we do that? 
What we're saying is the same thing. You're not that important. This little four inch screen is much more important. I wanna see what's on here. I choose a TikTok video of a concerned cat over you. That's what we're saying in that moment. And it's in all of us now. What Neil Postman wrote about in the 1980s, he could not imagine in 2022 how it has woven itself into the human DNA now. How do we break that? Here's how. I challenge you to take a Sabbath from your phone once a week. Turn it off for 24 hours. Try it. It'll, you'll have withdrawal symptoms. I know you will. You'll be checking your phone and it won't be there. But try it. I can't do that. I'm too important. Okay, an entire nation does it every week. Do you know that? First world, very, very impacting, very powerful, very successful nation. The entire nation takes a day off. And you may not know this, but they have the longest lifespan of any country in the world. They turn it off, right? You can do it. Well, Matt, what do I do? Take a nap. Read your Bible. Pray. Go for a walk. Talk to your spouse. Talk to your kids. Talk to your cat. Talk to your dog, right? Pray. Go weed your garden. Do not garden your weed, though. That one's wrong. <laughs> right? You will be happy and healthy if you do. If we don't do this, here's our destiny. We're going to be the salad-dodging food bubbles that are in the movie Wally. -E. That's what we'll all end up. That's our future, right? Unless we start taking steps today saying, I don't want to be that. That's where we're moving. I don't want to be that. And so I'm gonna put a stake in the ground and one day a week, I'm just gonna turn it off. I'm gonna unplug. And you'll be amazed. The sun will rise the next day. It's just amazing. Like, wow, the sun's up, amazing. The world didn't crash without me, unbelievable. That's what you'll notice. Try it, try it and see if your soul isn't restored. If some of the defaults in your brain aren't reset where they're supposed to be. The watchers entertain us unhealthy. Now we get to the ladies, verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. I love these ladies. There's one thing that they do, and that's it. They are present. This is the anti-venom to entertainment. Because here's our tendency when something hard is happening, like a crucifixion, like a divorce, like a death, like a terminal illness, whatever it is, our tendency is this as humans is to be like, man, I can't do anything about that, so I'm just not gonna do anything. I can't solve their problem, I can't help them, I can't bring that person back from the dead, I can't cure their disease, so you know what, I just, I'm not going over there. Okay, can these ladies solve the cross for Jesus? No. Can they stop the bleeding? No. Can they heal his wounds? No. They could not do anything, but they did everything that was needed. They were simply there. They were there. So I read this article a while back on mass shootings. 
and they were talking about the tendency that happens, especially when it happens when children are present, to rush a bunch of therapists and a bunch of counselors and a bunch of people in there and then like sit the kids down or sit the adults down and be like, okay, let's go over this. And they said, is that actually helpful? What they found is it's actually really unhelpful. That when in the moment of trauma, you try to get people to re-talk about the trauma, you actually are causing more trauma. That reliving it and re-talking about it actually releases toxins just like you're going through the trauma again. What they found was this was the key. The key to help people out of it was to have somebody that simply said, when you need it, I'll be there for you. And different people, things just bubble up. They don't bubble up at 1 p.m. on Friday for our session. They bubble up at different times for different people. Sometimes it's right afterwards, 24 hours later. Sometimes it's 24 days later. And it bubbles up some people five minutes and that's all they can talk about. Other people, it's five hours. That's unique. And you have to let people bubble up when they need to. And as long as they have someone that says, I'll be there for you. Those are the people that thrived and recovered and did well. That's what these ladies are there. They're not there trying to talk Jesus and comfort him. They're just there at a distance. And what you find in the other gospels is this. When, Jesus, when it bubbles up in Jesus, Jesus actually talks to them. And he's glad that they're there. Their presence ministers to him. I've had to go into difficult situations where a three-month-old baby just died. A one-year-old baby just died. An 18-year-old girl and her older brother died. 23-year-old Matt Hammer died almost 15 years ago to the day in a helicopter accident fighting a fire down south. I had to go there. Newly married, fiance of 30 days. And I knew this, I can't solve this. I don't have the answers for this. But I'll go and I'll weep with those that weep. And I'll hug people and I'll be present. And if they wanna talk, I'll be on the front porch. That's what we can all do. If you know somebody right now that's going through a crisis, a cross, a difficulty, man, send them a text. Hey, if you need to talk, I'm here. Hey, whenever you let me know, I'll be right over there. If you're taking your Sabbath from your phone, which you will this week, and it's that date, write them a letter, even better. Put it in the mailbox. Man, the ministry of presence is where so much happens. When I look back at those events, super hard events, those are some of the highlights for me personally of pastoral ministry. Because man, great things happen. Deep, deep things happen. These ladies got it. Now there's one more guy. Skip back up to verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. The centurion becomes a believer. Tradition says he actually joins the church. We don't know that. The Bible doesn't tell us that. I hope he is. A centurion would be a high-ranking, highly trained soldier. He knew one language, power, force, authority, subjugation. That's what he spoke. He would have been at hundreds and hundreds of crucifixions. 
He would have been in battles where thousands of people died right in front of him. It wasn't sitting, watching a TV screen, dropping a bomb. It was hand-to-hand combat. So here he is at the 534th crucifixion. He's seen it all. He's seen the gloating. He's seen the crying ladies. He's seen it all. And he's unmoved by any of it because it's old hat. But then something happens in his 534th crucifixion where he goes, what? Now, what was the trigger? It's verse 37. The Bible says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. That's not how you die on the cross. Skip down to verse 44. And when the centurion reports to Pilate, Pilate's like, what? No way. He can't believe it either. Because on the cross, here's how you would die. It would be a slow, painful death where each breath would become harder and harder and shallower and shallower until finally there was one last short gasp and you would die. That's not how Jesus died, was it? No, it says he uttered a loud cry and then breathed his last. And the centurion's like, I've never seen that before. I say, Jesus didn't go out with the bleat of a lamb. He went out with the roar of a lion. Because the Bible tells us his last words were, it is finished, and he breathed his last. And the centurion said, whoa, that's authority. That's victory. That's power. I've never seen anyone die like that. Truly, this was the son of God. It was a shout of victory. Death has been defeated. How brilliant is that? I like it for two reasons, then we're done. Number one, it's how Jesus meets the centurion. Centurion spoke power and authority. Jesus in his last breath, power and authority, roar of a lion, meets the centurion exactly where he needed to be met. Do you know that that's what Jesus does all the time? That we have a missionary God who comes after us and meets us where we're at. The wise men he met in the stars. David he met in the pastures. Paul he met in his mind. The fishermen he met in, his, in their nets. He meets you and me where we're at. We don't find Jesus. Jesus finds us. He is our missionary God who pursues us. And I'm so thankful for that. And then secondly, here's what I like. The centurion had doubts. Ah, this is nothing. Ah, this is nothing. He had questions. And maybe there are people in here that have questions. I just don't know if Jesus is the son of God. I know the sign above says king of the Jews, but I don't know if he is. Here's what he does. It's verse 38. It says that he stood facing him. Have you ever stood facing Jesus? Really evaluated the claims of Jesus. Not just what you read on the internet or what some celebrity tells you, but have you personally said, you know what? I am going to evaluate what Jesus said. Because church history is full of doubters who become brilliant believers because they took a moment and they stood and they faced Jesus. And they were absolutely, undeniably, just like the centurion, 
This is the son of God. Next week, we're gonna talk about the resurrection, the facts of the resurrection. Maybe that'll help answer some of your doubts. Have you really took time and faced Jesus? I love talking with doubters. If you have big doubts you don't know, man, let's talk. Let's grab coffee. Let's do it, okay? If you do, I think you'll realize he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. His roar of victory echoes today. And so when we go to the table now, here's what I'd like you to think through. We've had this mirror of the book of Mark. Do you see yourself somewhere in this group? Is there something God has called you to and you know it, but you're hesitating? Don't. Are you like the soldiers? You're just kind of like head down and life seems like it's passing you by. Awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead and Christ will shine his light on you. Right? That's the promise of scripture. Do you find yourself gloating and you hate it? Confess it and be cleansed from it. Are we consumed with entertainment? I don't think there's one of us that's not. And are you finding, I need to do something about it? Do something about it. Do you not go where you know, I should be present with that person, but you fear that you don't have the right things to say. You don't need to worry about what to say. Cry, hug them, pray for them. That's brilliant ministry. And as we drink and eat, like the centurion, we say, you are the son of God. You are the one that's able to remake me. You are the one that's able to reset my defaults so that they look like you. So Jesus, today, we know we need you. We know apart from you, we can do nothing. So as we eat today, if there's areas where we see ourselves in the mirror of Mark, and we don't like it, Today, be our bread. Strengthen us. Revive us. Let's eat together. And we hold the cup. It's a cup of celebration because on the cross, you roared like a lion. You roared victory over sin and death. You roared victory over my problems and my issues. And today, as we drink of this, we look forward to the consummation of the kingdom where all that's evil is wrapped up and thrown into a lake of fire and we live like we are designed to live. Reset, remade in your image. Let's drink of that victory. Amen. So we offer prayer up here. There'll be people up here. We offer baptism. Jason, right over here. If today's your day, be baptized. Would you stand for one final song?